This is an ABC podcast. Wars begin and end on precise dates, but they don't really. Wars, you see, are like cancers. You remove the main vile killer growth, declare the enemy to be vanquished, but then come the metastases. After World War I came the aftershock, the blight that led to World War II. And after that one came the Cold War and the kinds of aftershocks and cultural cancers we see all about us today. Wars go on, and so do their ghosts and their offspring. Remind us of what happened so long ago. Rob Morrison of South Australia, famed for the Curiosity Show and research in natural history, reflects on his own encounters with the war we now remember. I could never have expected to attend the funeral of a First World War soldier on the battlefield where he died a century before. A chance event brought it about. Spending a few days in Paris, my wife and I had joined a party visiting the Somme. It was only for a day and a bit hectic because of that, but the Somme was a mystery to me and we wanted to visit it during the centenary of the Great War. In my childhood, it was Gallipoli that people talked about when they referred to that war. Each day at school, we entered our impressive hall under a huge picture of the troops storming the Gallipoli beach. And in subsequent years, a series of films and television programs about the nation's heroic defeat there had built Gallipoli into the best-known symbol of World War I, a place where many claim that Australia forged its nationhood. What happened at Gallipoli was terrible but at least comprehensible. A map of that tiny cove and the cliffs behind it allowed you to follow and in part imagine the sequence of events during the months that our troops were there. But the Western Front was different. As a boy, I'd heard of famous battles such as Framel, the Somme, Bullecourt, Ypres and more, but it had been hard to place them into a concise picture of a battleground such as Gallipoli offered. Maps didn't help, showing a bewildering maze of shifting trench lines, superimposed fronts, and battles that covered half of France, lasted for years, and were not confined to discrete regions as Gallipoli had been. Hence our trip to the Somme, to try to make sense of the mosaic of battles that were linked, but difficult to fuse into a single comprehensible whole. We had driven across the countryside, past graveyards and monuments, and through rebuilt towns, to our lunch in Villers Bretonneux, a town that to this day demonstrates its profound affection for Australians whose soldiers claimed great victory there. Kangaroos abound in topiary, flower beds and more. The school has a huge caption, Do Not Forget Australia, above its playground, and the wood panelling of its hall is capped by beautiful carvings of Australian wildlife. Our vehicle moved on to the cemeteries. The large Villers Bretonneux Cemetery was included, but first there was a much smaller one, the Adelaide Cemetery, on the outskirts of the town itself. Following the armistice, this cemetery, established at the site of heavy fighting, more than doubled in size as soldiers were exhumed from smaller cemeteries around Villers Bretonneux and reinterred there. It now holds about 960 graves, many of them Australian. It was from this place that one soldier was exhumed, and taken home to lie in the Australian War Memorial in Canberra as Australia's unknown soldier. 
Making our way through the meticulously aligned white marble headstones, many with recent flowers and little Australian flags at their bases, we could see a small, colourful group at the far end of the path. Flags were held high and there were glints of polished brass. A woman carrying white cards approached and invited us to join the little crowd already there. To the horror of our guide, who correctly assumed that this would disrupt his tight schedule, we followed her down the path to find an army padre, fully gowned, conducting what was plainly a burial service. Soldiers in full uniform stood beside officials, while flag bearers and a bugler with a shining cornet were at attention beside them. In front of them all, in a freshly dug grave, was a new coffin. The service, unforeseen as it was for someone unknown to any of us and whose identity was a mystery, was unexpectedly moving. The last post always is, of course, and in that setting of hundreds of gravestones, it added powerfully to the atmosphere. The impact of a visit to the Western Front is undeniable, but it takes place largely through your imagination. This region, once a vast wasteland of mud, barbed wire and rotting men, is now benign farmland. The destroyed towns have been rebuilt, and the views of these huge fields is even a little boring, with almost nothing to show for the conflict except occasional markers indicating the site of tank battles, mine craters and former trench lines. But it's impossible not to be affected by the thought of so much pointless waste of life in the colossal horror that engulfed the surrounding countryside. The statistics of death and injury on the Western Front are staggering. The display of thousands of tombstones in dozens of cemeteries overwhelming. But your mind struggles to grasp the immensity of the carnage. It was crystallised that day in the sombre funeral of one man. In journalism, there's a saying that the newsworthiness of 100 deaths overseas equates to 10 in your own country and one in your street. Proximity, connection and personal relationship amplify the impact of serious events hugely. And the same was true in that serene graveyard. We could comprehend the slaughter of thousands academically, but when it came to the sad final service for this solitary soldier, he represented them all, he could be imagined, and among our troop of day-trippers was genuinely mourned. The bugler blew the last post, final words were said and the ceremony was over. It seemed indecent to treat it as a curiosity, but I was curious. Was it another reinterment from a different cemetery? Or a symbolic burial of a coffin to represent an unknown soldier whose remains had never been found? There were certainly thousands of those. But the Padre seemed grateful that our group had swelled his congregation and happy to talk. So I asked the meaning of the service and he explained. Farmers ploughing those placid fields around us frequently unearthed the ghosts of the horrendous battles there 100 years before. Barbed wire, army equipment, old shells, many still live, are regularly dragged to the surface by the farmers' ploughs. The farmers pile them beside the road and they're collected at intervals. But sometimes the farmers turn up more than hardware. They turn up the soldiers themselves. If they do the right thing, they notify the war graves authorities who do their best to determine the identity of the remains. This was once only possible through the crudest of means, uniforms and equipment, which could reveal nationality and army units, even if little else. Sometimes personal possessions identified the owner, 
but the paucity of these placed many remains in the graves of the unknown. As battlefield archaeology developed, it provided more techniques to identify these soldiers, but it was the development of DNA tests that's allowed so many to be positively identified, even though the remains may now be a century old, and so, thanks to modern science, the tombstones of many soldiers previously known only to God now reveal their ranks, names, and sometimes a short farewell. The standard archaeological technique of sifting soil to collect artefacts and bone fragments can be impossible on this former battlefield, as the ground is very sticky clay, a source of torment to the soldiers who had to fight in it, so that finger probing and metal detectors have to be used. In the case of the Framel victims, where many soldiers were buried together in a pit, soil samples from around each body were also x-rayed to uncover even smaller bone fragments or objects, and each set of remains was scientifically examined by forensic radiologists and archaeologists before being stored for future reburial. Details of height, facial features and pre-war injuries such as fractures or tooth decay can help in identification, as can any evidence of the injuries that are recorded as having caused a soldier's death. Where remains are believed to be those of an Australian, a small sample from a bone, or perhaps a tooth, is laboratory tested for DNA. If that sample is sufficiently large and has not degraded too far, it can be compared with samples from family members who have registered as having lost a relative on the battlefields and provided their own DNA for reference and comparison. The soldiers use both mitochondrial and Y-chromosome identification, but that may depend on the existence and gender of any relatives involved. Mitochondrial DNA is inherited from a mother who will have inherited it from her mother and so on back through generations, so that even distant relatives in the same maternal line will share the same mitochondrial DNA. Y-chromosome DNA identification relies on detecting short strands of DNA that are found on the Y-chromosome, which is only present in males. Fathers pass these strands on to their sons, who in turn pass it on to theirs, so that again, distant relatives from the same paternal line will have the same DNA components. In this case, personal identification was impossible, but the belt and boots of this soldier revealed his British origins so here he was at last, receiving a British funeral as the notes of the last post died away and he was buried in the Adelaide Cemetery beneath an unnamed stone beside hundreds of his anonymous companions. There are three more who will be buried next week, said the Padre, and paused. And nearby, they found eight Germans. This is a war that will never really be over. Rob Morrison, professorial fellow at Flinders University in Adelaide. And he wonders how it is that we still solemnly honour soldiers of a hundred years ago, though knowing sometimes only bits of their kit, sometimes not even their bodies. Yet veterans of recent or present conflicts are often treated shabbily or even ignored. A paradox. But the ghosts of history keep on emerging. Next week in Ockham's Razor, Australian of the Year, Michelle Simmons. I'm Robin Williams. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.